Good morning. Welcome to River Rock. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning. I understand that last week, uh, while I was on vacation, Stephen provided you guys with some ice cream during his sermon. Well, I, I hate to disappoint you. I don't have any ice cream this morning, but please don't get up and leave. Uh, hopefully, sometime I can make it up to you. Stephen's always got to one-up me. Um, great job. So, Stephen did a great job last week continuing our series in Haggai, and we're going to continue in Haggai chapter 2, beginning in verse 20 through 23 this morning. We're going to finish out the book this morning. Um, but before we do that, I just want to share something that I read this last week. A local newspaper had to kind of print a retraction, a correction story, because they were printing uh, notes and sermon notes for a local church. And they, the retraction or the correction uh, that they printed said this. It said, last week we misprinted uh, the, the sermon title for the first Christian church. We actually printed Our God Resigns, and the actual title was Our God Reigns. What a difference one simple letter makes. Unfortunately, many of us, many Christians live as though our God has resigned, rather than the reality that our God reigns. So this morning as we look at Haggai chapter 2, we're going to be focusing in on the sovereignty of God. We're going to be focusing in on the reality that God is the one who is in control. We often find ourselves asking the question, if you've ever had kids, maybe you ask this question, who's in control here? You've been at the grocery store, you've seen those parents before, you wonder who's in control. Sometimes it's obvious that it's not the right person. Sometimes in our own lives, we find ourselves asking, who is in control? We recognize that the right one is not in control in our own perspective, but in reality, our God reigns. Our God is sovereign. Our God is in control. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, uh, just a little bit of recap of the book of Haggai. Haggai was a prophet that lived around the 500 BC. He had been a part of the nation of Israel, the, the southern tribe of Judah, that had been exiled to Babylon. And at the time of their exile in 586, the temple was completely destroyed. But then under King Cyrus, God allows for about 50,000, a little remnant of the people of Israel to return and begin rebuilding the temple. They have a, an edict from the king that they are able to go and rebuild. They have the king's resources. So they come back. And this small group of people led by a man named Zerubbabel, who is a descendant of David, they come back and they begin working on the altar immediately. They rebuild the altar. They reinstitute sacrifices just as God had desired them to. And they start to lay the foundation of the temple. But then they face a number of pressures from around the people around them. Some of them pressures from within. And the work slowly stops. And people begin to focus their attention rather than on rebuilding God's house, on building their own house. And 16 years go by. And the temple still lies in ruins. God is displeased. God is displeased because the people of God, this remnant, has failed to recognize what their number one priority ought to be. And so in chapter one, we looked at, at consider your ways. This word, this phrase that means to put your heart on your path. God is saying, hey, think about the way that you're living. Is it leading you towards me or away from me? 
Is the way that you're currently living drawing you closer to God or taking you away from God? And the people respond and they recognize their failure to rebuild God's temple. The fact that they were, they were building their own paneled houses, these nice fancy houses. They were going out buying new boats, new camels, that new camel smell. You can't beat that. They were getting new flat screen. Uh, they didn't have TV, but they were getting new stuff for their house. Meanwhile, God's house lies in ruin. And they finally realize that what's important is that they rebuild God's house. And so they get to work. But it's not long before they're a little bit discouraged because there were some who had seen the original temple. And they're thinking to themselves, this looks nothing like the original. Oh, man, if you guys could just see the original. And so the people get discouraged. So Haggai preaches again. And and this time when he preaches, the people are encouraged. And they have promises from God that they will succeed. That the temple that they build will be even better because God's presence will be there. And then last week, Stephen covered the reality that, that... these people are still unholy, and so it's not their work that makes what they were doing holy. It was God himself who was going to make it holy, that they should be encouraged, that they could look forward to future blessing. This morning, we come to this third chapter, and we, we again are reminded that things have been fairly slow up to this point, that they hadn't seen the crops return. They hadn't seen the blessing that God had promised And so it would be easy for them to be discouraged or to think that their God had resigned rather than recognizing that their God reigns. And so that takes us to chapter 2, verse 20 of the book of Haggai. The word of the Lord came to Haggai a second time on the 24th day of the month. All right, 24th day of the month. If you go back to the previous section, it was the 24th day of the ninth month when Haggai preached for the third time. So this is the exact same day. The exact same day as his previous message God speaks to him again, and this is what he says. He says, speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah. Now, that's interesting. The other passages, the other sermons that Haggai preaches are addressed first to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, then to Joshua, the high priest, and then to all the people of Israel. The third sermon that he preaches He asks the priests a question, but we get from the rest of the passage, we see that he's actually addressing the entire congregation of Israel. All the people are addressed. This is the only one, this is the only sermon that Haggai delivers that is addressed only to Zerubbabel. And who was Zerubbabel? He was the governor. He was a political leader of the people. So, this is what he says. He says... I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones and destroy the power of the Gentile kingdoms. I will overturn chariots and their rulers. Horses and their riders will fall, each by his brother's sword. On that day, this is the declaration of the, of the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the Lord's declaration, and I will make you like my signet ring, for I have chosen you. This is the declaration of the word, uh, declaration of the Lord of hosts. Now, imagine you're Zerubbabel, and you know that there are millions and millions of Israelites scattered throughout the world, yet you are tasked with leading just 50,000 of them back, and they're building what, what people have recognized as just kind of this, this uh, shadow of a temple compared to the previous one. And so just as the people had been discouraged before, you can imagine that Zerubbabel is probably a little bit discouraged. That God, you know, 
I'm leading these people back. You've appointed me to lead them, but what we have just isn't amounting to much. And what I love is what we see in verse 21. It says, speak, uh, before that it says in 20, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. So Zerubbabel is feeling discouraged. He's feeling down. And what happens? What comes? The word of the Lord. This is bonus, right? This, this isn't really part of the message, but this is bonus. That in those times when we feel discouraged, when we feel down, what we really need is the word of the Lord. We don't need self-help book, help books. We don't need to find a therapist. What we need is the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to Zerubbabel, and he's encouraged. He's encouraged. We need the word of the Lord in those moments. We see in this, this chapter, in these few sections, these few verses, we read about God's divine judgment that's coming. If you want to read more about what that's going to look like, um, this points us ultimately to the end times, when Christ will come again, when God will finally rule and he will finally destroy, he will finally reign. And if you want to know what that final battle looks like, you can go to Daniel chapter 2, Revelation uh, 16 and 19, and Zechariah 12 and 14, and they tell us about the messianic kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ that will replace all the Gentile kingdoms, all the kingdoms of this earth. And we will finally have a true king, the one true king reigning on this earth, on this earth. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. This transition, as we read in those passages, this is not just a political transition where Jesus comes back and he says, okay, I'm here, and everybody says, oh, great, Uh, we vote Jesus as our new king. No, this is going to be a military transition. This is going to, there are going to be battles, there are going to be wars, there are going to be fights, but we know in the end who wins. We know that in the end, Jesus Christ will reign on the throne. And that's what these, these verses are pointing us to. God had chosen Zerubbabel to carry on the Davidic line. He's from the line of David. One of his ancestors was King David. His grandfather was Jehoiakim, who was king at the time that Judah was sent into exile. And there are some important things that God says about Zerubbabel here. He says that I will make you like my signet ring. Now that signet ring was something that was very important in those days. It was a symbol of authority. The one who had the ring was able to put the king's stamp on important documents, on treaties, on trade agreements. It was the king's signet ring that meant that that person had that authority. And so the king usually would keep it around his neck, but there were times that he would give it to someone else and say, I'm giving you my authority to make this decision. And so they could press that signet ring into the wax And anyone who received a letter with that stamp on it knew that this command was was as good as coming from the king himself because it had his stamp on it. It had his royal seal. And God tells Zerubbabel, I will make you like my signet ring. Now, something that's important for us to recognize is that in Jeremiah 22, when God speaks to Jehoiakim, Zerubbabel's grandfather, at the time of the exile, he says, if you were my signet ring, I would remove you from my hand and give you to Nebuchadnezzar. This is one of David's descendants. David was promised that he would have an heir that would reign on the throne forever. Yet God says, I'm about to remove you from my hand and hand you over to one of these pagan nations. And he does. So here, when we see that Zerubbabel is called 
uh, as God says, I will make you like my signet ring, what God is doing is he is reversing that curse that came when the line of David, the people of God, no longer followed his ways. So now he has Zerubbabel, and he says, I'm going to re, uh, reaffirm my covenant with you. I'm going to make you like my signet ring. That's important that we recognize that he doesn't say, I will make you my signet ring, but I will make you like my signet ring. Okay, so we know that ultimately this is pointing to Jesus Christ. This passage is pointing us completely to Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, what we have, it's called types. We have types of messiahs, right? So we see this going back to Abraham and to Moses and to David, that there are people, figures that represent, they foreshadow the coming of Jesus Christ. They foreshadow some of the things that he will look like. They are not the Messiah, but they kind of foreshadow what is to come. They let us know what we have to look forward to, something that's even better, something that's even more perfect. And so Zerubbabel, when God says, I will make you like my signet ring, he's saying, hey, I'm going to make you like the coming Messiah, that you are going to be a foreshadow of something greater than yourself that is to come. We see this again as he calls him my servant, my servant. It was a term that was used throughout the Old Testament. It's used of David. It's used of a number of people where God says, you are my servant. You are the one who's pointing to Jesus Christ. And so we have all this happening here. We have all these things taking place. And we know, as I said, that all these things that we read about, the wars, the overturning of kingdoms, the signet ring, the servant, that these are all foreshadowing Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is God's eternal plan. And this is what I want us to focus in on this morning. The first thing that I want us to focus in on is that God is sovereign. God is in control. And he will accomplish his eternal plan. Right? God is sovereign. God is the one who is in control. Six times in this passage he says, uh, he says, tell... He says, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. I will overturn royal thrones. I will overturn chariots. I will take you and make you my servant. I will make you like my signet ring. I have chosen you. Six times he says, I, I, I. Who is in control here? God. God is in control. God is in control. Zerubbabel is simply the servant. God is the one who is in control, working all things for his purpose, his eternal purpose, moving the people towards the coming of Jesus Christ. We can read many more verses about God being in control, God's sovereignty. One of them is found in Isaiah 14, 24. The Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have purposed, so it will be. As I have planned it, so it will happen. And then I love this one in Isaiah 46, 8 through 11. Remember this and be brave. Take it to heart, you transgressors. Remember what happened long ago. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and no one is like me. I declare the end from the beginning. And from long ago, what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place. And I will do how much? I will do all. I will do all. All my will. I call a bird of prey from the east, a man for my purpose, from a far country. Yes, I have spoken, so I will also bring it about. Read this last part with me. I have planned it. I will also do it. God's 
promise is as good as complete from the moment he makes it. From the moment he makes that promise and he says, here's what's going to happen, you can trust that it will happen. God is sovereign. God is in control. Uh, And I think this is something that many times we have different circumstances that come up in our life when we get anxious and we try to take control of our own lives. It feels like the world is careening out of control and God is just barely holding on to the reins. But we have to recognize that God is in control. And sometimes in those difficult moments, what we find is we find ourselves trying to take the reins rather than trusting and believing that God is in control. And it's in those moments when we do that, that we take God off his throne and we put ourselves on his throne. And whether or not we would acknowledge it, through our actions we demonstrate that we do not truly trust in God's sovereignty. I don't know if you've had moments like that in your own life. Maybe it was a difficult time that you don't understand why it's happening. And there may not be any good explanation. But we have to trust that God is in control, that God reigns. He has not resigned. I know for me, when these moments come up in my life, uh, there's a, a scene from the movie Rudy that, that just reminds me exactly of everything that I need to remember. Taking your appeal to a higher court. I'm desperate. If I don't get in next semester, it's over, done. Notre Dame doesn't accept senior transfers. Well, you did a hell of a job, kid. Chasing down your dream. I don't care what kind of job I did. If it doesn't produce results, it doesn't mean anything. I think you'll discover that it will. Maybe I haven't prayed enough. (laughs) I'm sure that's not the problem. Praying is something we do in our time. The answer's come in God's time. Have I done everything I possibly can? Can you help me? Son, in 35 years of religious studies, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts. There is a God, and I'm not him. There is a God, and I'm not him. What a great and simple truth that we ought to remind ourselves of often. I don't know about you, but in those moments when life seems out of control and I'm tempted to take the reins, I just need to remind myself that I'm not God, that there is a God who reigns, and that I'm not him, that I need to let him be in control and trust his plan. I'm sure this is something that Zerubbabel needed to remind himself of often, Because see, although these promises that God makes here of overturning chariots and overturning kings and overturning nations, God makes these promises to Zerubbabel, yet Zerubbabel never lived to see these things happen. Zerubbabel never lived to see the Gentile kings overturned. Zerubbabel never lived long enough to sit on the throne of King David. Zerubbabel didn't live long enough to see his name appear in the lineage of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. You can go to both Matthew and Luke 
And in those genealogies, you will find Zerubbabel's names in both places. He didn't see these things coming. He didn't get to see the Messiah. Back in Haggai earlier, chapter 2, verse 6, God says, In a little while, I'm going to shake the nations. And then here again, he says, I'm going to shake the nations. And it would have been easy for Zerubbabel to say, I'm waiting for this shaking. I think I'll just go make it happen myself. But instead, he's patient and he waits on God, yet he never sees it. What we have to realize is that in a little while for God is not the same as in a little while for man. And if you've ever been on a road trip with children, then you know that their perception of a little while is different than your perception of a little while. Uh, Not this last week, but the week before last, I was out. I got to travel on vacation. We went down to Houston with the kids to see my family, and then we went on to the coast. Uh, And the first part of the trip was going great. The kids, they were tired still. They fell asleep, and uh, we went uh, all the way. We made it to our first stop, which is always Bucky's on 290. So we stopped at Bucky's, and then the kids woke up. And it wasn't long after they woke up. We're only about an hour and a half, two hours into a a four-and-a-half-hour drive that they start asking, are we there yet? How much longer? And I've decided that since they can't really tell time and, and much like dogs, they probably don't have a per- perception of time this time in their life, I just say, well, two more hours, two more hours. And of course, five minutes later, well, how much longer now? Two more hours. Didn't matter when they asked if we had four hours or, or 10 minutes, two more hours. That was the answer. And so they kept wanting to know how much longer. And I would say a little while, a little while. And uh, so we go on this trip, we get to Houston, and of course, it's another hour and a half through traffic to get to the other side. Are we there yet? No. How much longer? A little while. We're on our way back, and Malachi says, uh, Daddy, I'm done driving. And we're about halfway from Padre Island to Austin, so there's not much we can do. I'm like, I'm sorry, buddy, there's nothing I can do. I can't go any faster. I can't make us just be home. And he goes, yeah, well, I'm done. And it's like, I, okay, why don't you just take a, take a nap? Thank goodness for uh, a DVD player that came with our van so we could pop, pop in a little VeggieTales for him to keep him entertained. But their idea of a little while, when I would say, hey, we'll be there in a, in a little while, we'll be there in two more hours, their idea of a little while wasn't the same as my idea of a little while. We have to recognize that God's idea of a little while is not the same as ours God had something far greater in mind for Zerubbabel than just to see his own kingdom restored. God had his own eternal kingdom in mind. And Zerubbabel was patient, and he waited for that. And he said, okay, I'd love to see this happen in my lifetime, but I'm going to trust you, God. One other thing that I notice in here about God's sovereignty, the reality that he has a plan that he will accomplish, is that there are no conditions that God places on this. He doesn't say, I hope to be able to, Zerubbabel, if you're willing, if you will be my servant, then I will do these things. No, God says, I'm going to do these things. I am going to do these things. Now, that leaves Zerubbabel with a choice. He can go along with God's plan, or he can fight against it. He can fight against it. God's plan will be accomplished with or without Zerubbabel. And this is something that we need to remind ourselves of. Verse 23 It says, uh, I will take Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant. This is the the Lord's declaration and make you like my signet ring. For I have what? I have chosen you. This 
is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. And this is what I want us to take away from this, is that God chooses us to participate in his plan. God chooses us to participate in his plan. God didn't choose Zerubbabel because of something good that Zerubbabel had done or because of any offering that Zerubbabel had made. Why is it then that God chose Zerubbabel? John Calvin, in his commentary uh, that he wrote back in the mid-1500s on the book of Haggai, says this. He's talking about why would God choose Zerubbabel? Why would God pick him? And this is what he says. He says, it can be found in nothing else but God's, but the goodness of God alone. Found in nothing else but the goodness of God alone. That is why he chooses. That's why he chooses Zerubbabel, by his own goodness. The same is true of our salvation. It's not because of anything that we do. It's not because of any good works that we do or church services that we attend or money that we give to the church that God chooses to save us. It's by his grace alone. It's by his grace alone and his goodness alone that he saves us. Now, I know some of you, if you're a little bit more Calvinist, then you're like, woo, right on. You know, this is it. You're speaking my language. But let me finish because there was still the choice that Zerubbabel had to make to participate in God's plan. And we're faced with that same choice when it comes to our salvation. God graciously gives us his salvation, not based on our works, but on his grace alone. Yet we are responsible for responding in faith to Jesus Christ. Acknowledging, number one, that we are sinners and that our sin separates us from God. But, as Romans 5.8 tells us, God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And we acknowledge that. And we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a sinless life, died on the cross, was buried, and on the third day rose again. We believe that he's coming again. And it's when we put our trust in that, that we're able to receive the gift that God has given us. We're able to receive that gift and participate in it. If you're here this morning, and that is not something you have ever done, I want to encourage you today. I want to encourage you with the reality that God has chosen you. God has chosen you, and he is inviting you to respond in faith by trusting in his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I know for some of you, uh, this is confusing. How can God be sovereign, yet man still have a choice? Uh, And the honest answer is that I don't know. I don't know. I've studied scripture. Uh, I, I spent a lot of time in college studying this, this exact topic because I wanted to know who was right. And in the end, I found out that everybody's wrong, uh, that God affirms both his sovereignty in scripture and his choice of us, yet he also expects us to respond in faith, that we're not just puppets that God is dangling and he's making us do certain things or not do certain things. And so I don't know how the two work exactly, but I believe that it's not something we're going to figure out this side of heaven. And so what I want us to focus on is the reality that God has chosen us and the reality that he expects us to respond in faith. He expects us to respond in faith, not because of our own good works, but because of his work through his son, Jesus Christ. I think Jonah 2.9 says it best. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, something that, I, that hit me as I thought about that this week, as I thought about this section this week, that God chooses us to participate, yet he expects us to respond 
It's up to us to respond, choose whether or not we participate in that plan. Because God's accomplished, God's plan will be accomplished with or without us. So how do we do that? Well, as believers, those who've put their trust in Jesus Christ, we have Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. And no one can boast. Very clearly, we see in this passage that we are saved by God's grace through faith in his, Jesus, in his son, Jesus Christ. It's not of our works. It's by God's grace alone. But look at verse 10. Verse 10 says this, for we are his creation created in Christ Jesus. What is that word there? What does that say? For, not by, there's a big difference, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. So that we should walk in them. What are those good works? First and foremost, those good works that God saved you for is the spreading of the gospel. God saved us, not so that we could just sit here on Sunday morning and become more holy, that we could be more like him, that we could look better and feel better about ourselves because I know more of the word of God than my neighbor does. No, that is his desire for us to grow in holiness, but his desire is for us to be spreading the good news of his son, Jesus Christ, with the people around us where we live, work, and play. That's his number one desire for us. That's the work that he has for us to do. That's the temple that he wants us to build. The people of Haggai's day had a physical temple to build. What God calls us to build is his kingdom, which means that we need to be giving every man, woman, and child repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the life-changing reality of Jesus Christ. And there's another part of that. There's another part of those good works, and, and it ties in with this first one, the evangelism, the sharing of the gospel And that is serving here on Sunday morning. We are at an exciting time at River Rock Bible Church. I know it doesn't look full in here this morning because everyone's on vacation. um, But think back just a few weeks ago, back to the month of May when we had 90 people sitting in this room. And how full it felt and how many voices there were. We've grown 80% in this past year. And the elders of River Rock Bible Church believe that God is going to continue to bless us with that kind of growth as we seek to reach every man, woman, and child. And so in order for that to happen, we've got to go to two services to make room for more people who are far from God, who wouldn't normally attend service that we've invited, that will come and sit with us. And in order for Sunday morning to happen, that means that each one of us needs to use the gifts that God has given us to serve here on Sunday morning. You're not just serving your church family. You're serving those who've yet to put their trust in Jesus Christ. You're serving children who for the first time in a Sunday school class will hear the gospel preached. For the first time, they'll sing songs about God, about Jesus. For the first time, someone will receive a warm handshake from the church rather than being shunned because of some sin in their life. You have an opportunity to be a part of that. So my question to you this morning is, how are you going to participate in God's plan as his servant? How will you participate in God's plan as his servant? This final message of Haggai teaches us that the world is often frightening. There are frightening circumstances. There are powerful enemies of the gospel. And personal discouragement isn't a good reason for us neglecting the work that God has called us to. 
Just because the Supreme Court hands down a decision that we do not agree with because of what Scripture teaches us is not a good reason for us to go into a hole and decide that we're no longer going to participate in God's plan of sharing the gospel with every man, woman, and child. It's not a reason. God is still in control. God is still sovereign. His message to the people from earlier in the book of Haggai, chapter 2, when he says, be strong and work, that's the same message he has for us today. Be strong and work, building my kingdom, going to every tribe, nation, tongue, and people, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. We have to remember, our God has not resigned. Our God reigns. Do you believe that? Do you believe that our God reigns? Amen. This morning, uh, we, we like to take some time at the end of our message and give you just a few minutes to reflect on what God is saying to you. So you'll notice in your bulletin, in addition to your notes, there's a little section there that says take two. Um, at this time, we're just going to take two minutes. And what I'd ask of you there is in this time, just reflect on what God is saying to you. What is he saying to you through the message, maybe through a song or through something that you read earlier this morning from his word? What has God been saying to you this morning? And, and write that down. Make a note of that so you can remember what God has said to you. And then below that, there's a space where you can write what you will do about what God said this week, that you could act on what he said, that your actions would line up with what you believe he's called you to do. So at this time, um, Stephen and the worship team are going to be playing a song for us. It's a very simple song. Feel free to join in at any time. Um, it's called Our God Reigns. It's a very simple reminder that our God reigns. At this time, would you take two? <laughs>